Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity, helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The Best of Times, your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, radio listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine for mature adults in northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning in to our show. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Also listening via the Radio Pup applications and the Keel app on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about the Internet from an international expert about rethinking finance in this digital age. So stay to this show for some very beneficial information. I hope that you are safe and healthy during these pandemic times and practicing social distancing, of course, wearing your face mask as much as possible. It's a difficult time for all of us all over the world, but hopefully it will become normalized quite soon. Joining me on my radio show as a special guest is Mr. Ken Kamen, who is an internationally known financial expert, advisor, and author of a very interesting book called, entitled, Don't Let Technology Crack Your Nest Egg. So thank you, Ken, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Ken, before we tell our listeners a little bit of snippet about your book, and hopefully they're going to be ordering it, I do highly recommend to my listeners out there, this is a must book for you and your millennial grandchildren and children. It's it's he he has hit some extremely touching items that I have made use of. I've read the book twice already, and I want to compliment you. It is quite helpful. Um, well, thank I'm, you much. And I'm still reading and and jotting down and 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 taking down things to, to, to further investigate. So I'm, I'm planning to, to make use of your book and your guidance and your advice quite a bit. So tell us a little bit about your career and background. Well, I've been in the brokerage industry since 1980. The stock, but what used to be the stock brokerage industry, now <laughs> it's just called financial advice. That's right. I started right out of college, uh, interning, cold calling, uh, interrupting people at dinner, trying to get them to listen to me so maybe I can give them an idea. And uh, I've been in it ever since. And, uh, you know, I am now a uh, financial advisor that helps people, uh, as I say, no one wants to run out of dollars before they run out of heartbeat. So That's my mission true. Is to help people uh, keep that on track and help them think through the important financial decisions of their lives. And I've seen how technology is just changing everyone's relationship, not only to the world around them, but money, how they look at it, how they spend it, how they think about it, earn and invest. And that's what led me to write the book. Well, that, that's, you know, what you've, what you've showed us is that we need to really consider things. And, and you, your book also goes through history a little bit about, uh, I mean, the 60s, the 70s, and brings us up to the... 2000 and uh, the 2020s, you might say. So uh, there, there's so many relevant topics in your book. Let, let's hit on one that I thought was was fascinating. And, there, and I, I thought about it and some of these items, but you, you tell us, uh, you you give a more great scenario. And you, your, your topic is this deciding screens are distraction from our savings. Elaborate a little bit about that. Well, people are spending so much time looking at screens, whether it's your uh, cell phone, whether it's the computer, whether it's the television, 
I mean, and now that we're all homebound in this coronavirus world, we're spending more and more time with screens. The problem with screens is that time eaters, we don't realize, you know, you look up and you go, wow, where did that last hour and a half go? And you wind up realizing that there's so much productivity that you think you're getting done on these things, but so much of it is just distracting and kind of what I'll call mental mush. They just kind of have you going down these wormholes of information. Oh, let me click on that and see where that takes us. And, and when you zoom back from that, you realize what other productive things you can be doing with your time other than staring at screens. I think it's really an important thing for people to consider. Uh, the, the number one thing that, that kind of the whole Internet is being based on is an advertising model. It's, it's all about what can we do to keep people engaged longer so we can serve them up more ads and more of whatever where the advertiser or a company is trying to get them to, to look at, which means you're spending a lot of time looking at these screens for someone else's agenda, not your own. Wow. And, you know, I, you talk about productivity. I mean, uh, though this show mainly targets uh, seniors and boomers. A lot of them are retired, but some of them are still working, and some millennials still listen to my show. I'm really happy to say that for the past 20 years. I've got more young people that, that listen to my show quite regularly. But just think about it, of the distractions you were mentioning in your book, that uh, of all the things we're doing, even it's going to be making you have that eight-hour going into 10-hour to be productive, right? You're probably adding a well, few hours. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing, too. There is no more kind of, you know, a, a, a regimented day anymore. I mean, how many of us, you know, the first thing we touch in the morning is the screen to check to see if we have emails or what the weather's going to be, and which means we're looking at advertisements and all that. And it's the last thing we look at at night. So right. it, it really does get in the way. And, and, and unfortunately, uh, for younger people, it could be squeezing out uh, productive time at work, uh, especially if they're doing it in the office is a lot of studies that say that the uh, average company loses 45 minutes a day of worker productivity because workers are checking emails, screens, private uh, uh, information. Uh, but think about also for seniors and people at home, how much time is being sucked up that they could be doing other productive things or or just in, in enjoying family or others. You know, we, we all have this image of, you know, teenagers being stuck up in their room playing video games, but it's now kind of, been morphed into an entirely different thing for people of all ages because there's something for everyone on there. So I, I just finding that, it, that in many ways it's crowding out a lot of other productive things in people's lives. And it's also putting a lot of bad things in people's minds because, you know, the, what, what gets our attention? Negativity gets our attention. Right. And especially for older Americans that, you know, it's a, there's a lot of anxiety out there already with savings, with do I have enough to, to, to either retire on or with what I retire? Will it get me to the finish line? And we're being served up continuously a lot of uh, kind of distressing pieces of information because that's what gets us to, to, to look and to click on the next thing. And I always try to remind people that the news and the media do not cover all of the airplanes that land safely. They only cover <laughs> the ones that don't. And that, I think that when point. you allow that in yeah, and when you allow that into your field of vision all the time, it's very hard to have an optimistic view of the future. And the path to financial success is not having rosy glasses, but it's certainly having an optimistic view towards the future. Because if you didn't think the future was better, you would just be spending everything you had now because the best is behind us. So I think it's very important that people keep in mind that, you know, what these things are and what they aren't. And and you elaborate that in your book that, uh, that you know, you only hear 
lot of too much is negative and not enough is positive. And I will tell you, our magazine for the past 20 years and our radio show is all upbeat and positive. I let everybody else talk about the negatives. I love to talk about the positive things, the good things that are happening. I agree. The, the best. And, it, and it makes people smile. Right and I don't want to be people Absolutely. gloomy. And even when I have financial planners on the board, you know, I try to get, tell them be a little positive about the investments and so forth, and and their their planning and planning for the future. Don't be everything's doom and gloom. Uh, and and think. Well, I also say to people that they have to be their own critical listeners, because we're in a world now where you can get your own bespoke news. You could listen to opinions and news broadcasts that will never challenge your view of the world. No. And it will only make you more calcitrant in the way you look at things. So I think it's so important that if you're going to spend time on these devices, at least spend some amount of time trying to get an alternate point of view. Because it's just too easy to be stuck in your own thought bubble and never be challenged because of the amount of news flow and, and social media and everything else. And, and that's something that, that is really an important thing for older Americans to really think about also because they're not in the workplace. They might not be out uh, meeting different people as much. You know, they might be leading a little bit more isolated lives. So the world is being served up to them. And if you're only going to live, you know, allow the, the waiter to serve you the only the dishes you've known of and you know you like, you're never going to be exposed to new ideas. And new ideas is, is kind of the lifeblood of keeping your brain going, I think. Well, it, it, does, it does. And, and, uh, you mentioned one interesting. You meant you said an interesting word and phrase, which I use a lot. Haven't used a lot lately, but recalcitrant. There's a lot of people that are very recalcitrant out there. That that's a an, an interesting word and phraseology that people do not often use. Um, but the, but the other aspect I wanted to mention to you that uh, I thought uh, you, you you went over you went on this a little bit, but I think our listeners need to. Uh, he gives different negatives. But positives, but saying excessive screen time does affect your health. And wow, he gives so many examples, which I'm thinking about. Too many people are telling me they're getting t- uh, their eyes are, are are getting dry eye syndrome. They're uh, poor posture. Uh, people telling me they're gaining weight, even during this this COVID pandemic era. And, you know, and and you say in the book, you need to get up and move around. It's important that you know you don't just get glued. You know. 12 hours on the on the on the, the the monitor or the or the looking at your iPhone or iPad etc is that right yeah and it's even more than that I think it, everyone can recognize that they're becoming a couch potato by just sitting and looking at screens but there are other things we don't realize that if you're looking at these screens before you go to bed you know the blue light that comes from kind of screws a little bit with your brain rhythms to be able to calm down and fall asleep so now they have night settings that you can kick in and, and change the settings on your screens. All this stimulation doesn't allow for kind of some sound, restful sleep, in which we all need that for uh, kind of getting through the next day and having a positive attitude. Uh, I think it's really just important that everyone tries to have balance. And, and the, the, you know, we all tend to be, you know, kind of lazy, I guess, from, from genetics. I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't mean we don't exercise. But if we have the opportunity to sit an extra five minutes on the couch, we will. Wait, wait, hon, I'll be out there in a minute. I'm just reading something. And if we have something that continuously serves up stuff to us that keeps us, you know, engaged in sitting, not only will we, will, will we kind of lose contact with, with our exercise, we also, you know, start losing contact with <laughs> with interactions with other people, and that's not so good either. Well, uh, let's, let's move into another topic, which... He goes into various uh, aspects 
of uh, technology, but I thought this one, boy, it hits right on the mark. And I've seen too many millennials, and even, I'm going to say just millennials, but even some seniors and boomers are doing this. It's the lifestyle creep, keeping up with so many Joneses. Elaborate on that to our, for our listeners out there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was probably the beginning of kind of the consumerism, the envy uh, of consumerism, seeing how the other half lived. And now you want to have a little taste of that. I mean, whether it's the Kardashians or any other, you know, influencers, it's the whole idea that someone else has something that we don't have. Look at the great life they're living. And we want to spend up to that level. And we want to do it in ways that make us feel better. In many cases, we're not spending money to, you know, get everyone to envy us, you know, but we're all maybe just trying to get that one extra item or that one thing that we saw brought someone else so much joy that we're trying to get it on our own. And that's the number one thing that's working in marketing today is kind of online influencers. And we could talk a little bit about how digital marketing kind of hooks you into buying items you wouldn't have considered buying. But this kind of, you know, uh, consumerism creep, it, it, it's, it's enviable consumerism. And it's, it, it's terrible. And it really sucks a lot of money out of people's wallets. Think about this. How many young people, or even people in general, you know, that are on Facebook and social media, when you have 400 people in your social media world, someone's always out having a steak dinner any night of the week because you just have that many people. And you kind of think, well, wait a minute, why am I home eating hamburger helper when Jake's out eating steak? <laughs> so you might want to go out more because you think you deserve it. So you wind up spending to a level that you think you deserve because you see other people in your universe that you think either you've made more than them, you've saved more than them, whatever your mental image thinks that you deserve it more than they do. So you wind up, you know, kind of having this false stimulus that pushes you out into the world spending money that you probably shouldn't be spending as continuously as you have. And another very interesting thing which totally blows me away is this idea of selfies and putting up, you know, these pictures of yourself doing things. Mm -hmm. How many people are just going out to a restaurant they might not be able to afford just so they can take a picture of themselves sitting there and having a great restaurant to make the, you know, the friends in their world a little bit envious that tonight they're out at that great you know, restaurant. But, so how much of people's yeah. lives are being led for, because they're now TV producers of their own life. And, and they're, 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 uh, and they're also probably getting in more debt than they should. Do. They, they may make a good income, but, uh, as we have seen, some of those incomes, uh, can be curtailed for a while, even during this particular scenario. And they, they need to plan for the future. Uh, it was sad when I read some report that very few people have even savings enough for one month to sustain if they lost their, their significant job or uh, livelihood. It's just really sad. They don't have that safety net. Like like when my father uh, and mother were, when I was younger, they, they had that particular safety net. They, they said, we need to have enough in case something happens or uh, that we don't have to go out and borrow. We have, well, it was we a different have, world then. When your father and mother were, if they wanted to buy something for Christmas, they would have to start putting money into the store in the Christmas account in January so they'd have enough space saved up by December to buy it. That's right. Now you could buy something for Christmas and you're still paying for it five Christmases later. <laughs> so it's an entirely different world that we're in today. But I think you really touch on a very important point, which is that, you know, th th what is the opposite of savings? The opposite of savings is spending. And technology is doing a lot to ramp up everybody's uh uh, kind of, 
you know, want, need for something they have to have immediately. And if you're spending on something, you know, you won't get the real joy out of it maybe in two, three, five months. You'll get that dopamine hit from buying it now, but you'll be paying for it or depleting your savings for quite a long time. And I always say to clients and to anyone that will listen that when it comes to spending money, the more you could spend money on memories and, and, and experiences, they appreciate with time. If you spend it on stuff, that depreciates with time. And what I mean by that is whether you want that piece of jewelry, that car, that new couch, whatever it is, if they're that, you've been using it for a month or two or five months, it's not going to be as great as it used to be. It, it's just it, its value to you will depreciate. But you could buy an experience. Think about it. That trip you went on with the family 10 years ago where the car broke down, the dog got sick, you had to stay in a crappy hotel, uh, you didn't make it to your final destination. It was terrible when you were doing it, but now it's one of the most beloved stories you tell around the Thanksgiving right. dinner. That, that Memories have a way of appreciating. And the problem with consumerism in this, in this kind of consumer age of getting people more angst up on buying your product, uh, it's just getting them to buy things that are giving them short-term dopamine hits. And yeah. one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about is how we're giving out what I call digital exhaust. All this information about ourselves that marketers are tracking and following so they know how to push our hot buttons so it's more likely that they'll get us to spend in ways that we wouldn't have considered other than their great algorithms and ways of amping up our anxiety to buy something. I, I thought uh, another interesting aspect that you mentioned, which is true. I mean, I even have my son, my son, I have two sons and a daughter, and they're all into the technology and the upgrades. And they more stuff they buy more stuff and upgrades and you know sometimes i get frustrated i said you know that's how these people do it apple and the android people they just keep making new phones and new new models and you know i keep i i was one of the last to wait to get an apple phone until my son the middle son is a technology guy uh said dad get rid of that flip phone i'm sending you an iphone <laughs> he sent it to me i love him but i mean i was i was very happy uh, but nope, he had to, he had to, we had to go into the Duke iPhone. An yeah. uh, and, I mean, know. a lot of your listeners could remember going and having you know radios fixed, TVs fixed. Every main street had a TV repairman on it. Oh you know? yeah. Now all these things are disposable items. You just throw them out and get a new one. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I even I even did. I, I was a TV repair person when I was in high school. I had tubes and tube testers, and I would go out and fix people's TV sets. They thought I was. I was like the the doctor to be to fix it. It was so easy, you know. You just take it. It was that was many years ago. But you know, more stuff to buy. But you know, as you said, they, they accumulate so much stuff. And I mean, we're talking lots of stuff. And these, these young people, I mean, including others, uh, have so much. It's hard to get rid of it. And you have storage rooms. As my wife said, you know, we had a storage room for twenty years that was so full of stuff from prior. Uh, activities, my sons and daughters, et cetera, and everything, and you know, nobody even went in there. And then finally, we got rid of it. We just gave a lot of it away with people really. Well, how about it. the whole, in, the whole industry now? These stores, you know, the oh, e yeah. store and, and sell stuff. I mean, so we buy so much junk that when we run out of stuff in our houses, we pay a hundred or two hundred dollars a month to go store the junk we keep buying in a place off site that we're never going to go to anyway. That when we finally, you know, look at cutting our bills back, that's probably one of the first bills people are going to be able to cut. It's hysterical to me how much stuff people buy. But one of the things we touched on a little while ago 
is that, you know, we're all having our hot buttons pressed to keep buying things. We believe new and improved. To me, that's a gateway phrase to stay away. If something's <laughs> new and improved, that just means they made some incremental difference. I defy any of your listeners to tell me whether they really think new and improved Tide really cleaned their clothes better than the last <laughs> version of the Tide that they had. That's I a mean, good one. there are things that we're taking people's word for that they actually do something. Now, in technology, there actually are some useful things, but... I don't know. I mean, maybe if you have an iPhone 5, it's time to upgrade to an iPhone 11. But if you had an iPhone 9 or 10, do you need an 11? No. And I think the whole idea of everything being upgraded is just a way of making cash flow for shareholders. A way to look at it is if you're a buyer of an iPhone, you want to wait as long as you can for for a feature you really want. If you're a shareholder of Apple stock, you want to get everyone juiced up about even the slightest different thing. <laughs> There's 10 more pixels in the picture, and you can blur the background. Oh, my God, i got to get that. And as a shareholder, I want you to get it. But as an owner of an iPhone, I think I can kind of hold off on owning that for a while. And those are the types of things that people have to be thinking about. Because one of the things that's really happening in an accelerated fashion now from COVID is that we're all doing everything online. We're shopping. We're doing everything. And, and we give off what I call digital exhaust. It is amazing what algorithms know about us, what advertisers know about it. It is estimated that every man, woman, and child in America today has over 5,000 unique pieces of information in, on record about them that advertisers could, could kind of piece together to decide whether you really are a great candidate to buy a red polka-dotted over-the-shoulder knapsack. I mean, that's how, you know, th th they could put together through big data people that did this, 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 and this, like that knapsack, and you just happened to do those things over the last year, and now you get served up an ad for that. And so it's so important to recognize that we're actively giving marketers the information they need to push our hot buttons, and that's where consumerism, as you brought up in the earlier segment, comes to be a real problem because that's when they get a direct access into your credit cards. Not because they're stealing your money, because you're willingly giving it to them because of the, because of the excitement that they know how to incite in you because you've given them that information about yourself through the years. Yeah, Ken, you mentioned on your Chapter 5 is giving up privacy. And, wow, I, I learned a lot of new things I was not aware of. And, of course, we all get them in the mail or electronically the privacy agreement, and it's you know it's probably 400 pages in length, and most of the time, who's going to read all the details? But when you say I accept, they're ready, right? Like they get that information, right? You know, it's like uh, I wrote the chapter: when they get to know you, they know how to get you, and it's just <laughs> amazing what people will will click onto for the privacy statement. There was a study that Carnegie Mellon that said if the average person read all the user privacy statements and user agreements that they now currently have on their cell phone, it would take 23 days to read them all. Oh, and it's just, uh, there's just, it, there's been so many experiments where uh, one website uh, actually put in the, it was a test website to see whether people would do it. It was for like a flashlight app that promised something, you know, I found, came across this in my research. And in the very first line of it, it, you agreed to give up your firstborn. And 93% <laughs> of the people clicked on it because they uh, never read it. They never read it. No, a lot of people I did not read, read the details. I, I agree with that. I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm guilty and of it, but a lot of people, read. they call it gobbledygook, and a lot of do not read the details, and it's important that you read things before you 
Uh, I mean, so many problems with online contracts and online agreements. Um, but privacy, we well, are people, we, we are giving up well, a lot one of, of that. They, yeah, one of the things I try to highlight in the book is that, you know, we don't really run our own lives anymore. We kind of assigned it to our digital avatars. Your financial life is being run by your password and username. And God forbid something happens to you with your wife, your children, or someone else know how to pick up where you left off, know all the things that you have on automatic payment, all the things that you have uh, kind of subscribed to, and then recognizing that all the things you think you, you kind of have, you, you once, if God forbid, you pass away, you don't have them anymore. That's in most of these user agreements that, you know, I write in the book that, you know, I'm a jazz fan, so I know I bought a Dizzy Gillespie uh, when it was on uh, eight, uh, 33 vinyl. I know I bought it when it was on 8-track. I know I bought it when it was on cassette and then a CD and then digital, but at least I owned it. Now they tell me that I have Dizzy Gillespie plus a million other songs, but I have <laughs> to pay $15 a month. But once I stop paying $15 a month, you don't have access. I don't have a million songs, but I also don't have Dizzy Gillespie anymore. So what people have to realize is as we get more and more into the subscription world, which all marketers are pushing us towards, that those subscriptions are all being kind of managed by our digital selves, of which our physical self is just the steward of. And how much money are people leaking away? I bet if people looked at their credit card statements now, there's two or three things on there that are probably leaking 5 and $10 a month that they can get rid of that they haven't used in a year. And God forbid something happens to you, would a spouse or a loved one know how to go in and turn off all the things that you're spending money on? It's those are the types of things I spend a lot of ink in the book talking about yes, you how to manage your digital assets and your digital self because that's what you say. Once they know you, marketers know how to get you, and it's all about getting you to sign up for long-term contracts on things that just all happen in the background, which is why I also talk about in the book one of the things that, that technology is doing. It's virtualizing money. We used to go to the bank. I used to have to go to the bank when I was in college, and if I didn't cash a check, uh, on Friday afternoon by 3 o'clock, I'd have no money for the weekend. You know, so we had a real sense of having to budget. Today, we don't steal our money up. Our employees pay it directly into our account. It's just digits, and marketers just know that. All we have to do is click, yep, Venmo, yep, and, and, we, and the money keeps getting sucked out of us. And, and, and you're, and you're really definitely right. There is chapter 3 talks about going cashless, and wow, the, the, the history behind that and, and you know, Cash were, is cash was king before, but now very few people even using cash. And you know now you saw during the pandemic, people are there's a shortage of coins. So I just want to know where did all those coins go? <laughs> no one wants to touch them anymore. Well, but no, people spend so much more money on on credit cards than in cash. Oh, That's yes. why casinos have you turn everything into chips because if you had to sit there pushing hundred dollar bills out of your pocket every time you lost it. How many right. would you keep pushing across the table after you list them? You know, but little green chips, I think you could do that with. Yeah. What's interesting, one of the anecdotes I talk about in the book is the first, you know, consumer credit card was Diners Club. And the founder of Diners Club went to restaurants and charged them 7% of the check to if they would take Diners Club. And the restaurants looked at him and said, are you nuts? Why would we give you 7%? And he said, because your revenues are going to go up more than 10% if you do it. And it turned out revenues went up 20% more for people that were using the Diners Club. And restaurants were signing up to become part of the Diners Club. That is true. That is true. And then eventually everybody started joining the bandwagon for the, the, the Visa, the MasterCard, to Discover, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know. And, and now everyone wants points. 
which is the latest drug of choice. Everyone's <laughs> shopping for points and all these things. So that's great. So you're going to spend all this money so you can get half a penny back or a penny back with a double your points if, if you use the points on a Tuesday when it's raining. I mean, there's all these different rules and what you know. But they're all trying to you know make people you know rich with points, which is hysterical. All these points you have hundreds of thousands of points, you know, for for buying socks and, and groceries, and then you know you wind up when you wind up use them, it costs you fifty thousand points for one night in a hotel. But yet they get people addicted to that. And it goes back to the other thing is, God forbid something happens to you, what happens to all those points? Go read the user's manual and everything along the lines there to understand all the things that happen to you and, and understanding what your digital self is all about. So I try to highlight that also. Well, and, and the other dangers about this electronic spending, et cetera, is uh, and some, some of the youngers and even the elders are saying, I just have to pay that minimum. But the interest charge on some of these credit cards are just astronomical. I mean, it's, it's well, putting my financial advisor hat on, paying the minimum is the sure road to financial ruin. Uh, you know, because you, you'll never pay. It'll take 30 years to pay it off. And while that time, you're still spending money on current things. So, you know, paying the minimum is, is just not a smart thing to do. If you have no choice, you have to do it. But if you're in that position, I would really look for debt counseling and seeing how you might be able to consolidate but it's so important to get a handle on your spending, and technology makes it harder and harder to really have that handle. Technology separates us from our good good judgment because it just makes everything too sexy, too easy, and, and, and almost too fun to spend money. And uh, why not when I didn't even have to leave my house to do it? Here's an interesting thing. When in the old days, if you were homesick, you couldn't spend money. You were you you were laid up, and at least you knew you weren't spending money. Now, if you're homesick, you're more than likely going to go bankrupt because all you're doing is keeping yourself occupied, doing the home channel network, or, or or shopping for that one mower you always wanted, or whatever. You're more likely to spend money if you're sick at home than it used to be. Yep, that that is definitely true. Another chapter I thought was good. You you touched on some of this. We're, we're being gained, letting virtual persuaders push your buttons and wow he, he gives us a lot of practices deceptive practices that we need to watch in this in this digital era and uh, he also you also give us some suggestions on how to avoid some of these which I thought was very good and 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 and, 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 and I've, I've learned from from some of these as well but wow you know this online shopping deal. You got to be you got to be really careful, and you got to read the details, right? You mentioned like the free shipping discounts on a purchase, but must reach a certain level. Which, you know, I've seen that happen. I know that others have, have pushed their level, pushed their spending. They really need this extra, but if I did this, I get free shipping. Big deal, right? Well, what's interesting is how absolutely scientific those numbers are. You ever wonder why some of them say if you spend thirty nine ninety five, you get you know free shipping? It's because they recognize that two items in their in their world only get you to thirty eight dollars, but that <laughs> next item will get you up to forty nine or fifty two dollars, and that extra profit is the is that you didn't really need to buy. You are you're paying for shipping. It's just that they know exactly the number they need to get you over. So you know, there very rarely is something you could buy on the web for a dollar or two or three on their website. So you'll just have to buy that next $12 item or, ah, what the heck, I'll buy that $25 shirt that I saw there. So they, these things are very, very well thought out. And, you know, in that world, we don't stand a chance because computers and and and, and psychology kind of wins out. And, and the point I write in my book is not that the, that 
it's a lost cause. It's that we need to be armed with this information so we recognize it. Like, you know, to use kind of uh, an old analogy, we've all been on first dates. It's all been kind of part of the growing up thing. And when you're on a first date, you know, your antenna is up for all these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, I, you know, I don't want to call out any particular baby. But we're all listening for those white red flags that go, nah, this isn't the person for me. Well, in the technology world, you, you have to be almost on a first date with any marketer that's trying to get you to do something and looking for those red flags because that's the type of thing that's going to help you defend your wallet against them. That, because the cow is already out of the barn. We're not the digital exhaust has already given them this example of who you are. They know how to push your buttons. We just need to be way more discerning. The best way to defend ourselves is being educated and know the practices that they do that push our buttons. So we'll recognize them when they're happening, or we'll know when someone's trying to put a smooth talking line on us. And it was way easier when they were just in infomercials in the middle of the night. We knew the guy had one thing in mind to just get us <laughs> to buy the pot or the pan to stay now awake, to stay awake, and to do that. Right. But, uh, well, but so here, it's so important that you're on, the, and what I try to do in the book is talk about a lot of the things that people could do so that, so a little, you know, sound goes off in their head that I know I'm being gamed right now. And they might still want the item, but at least they're doing it with their eyes open. Joining me on my show today is a special guest, is Mr. Ken, Ken Kamen, who is a nationally known financial expert, advisor, and author of a very interesting book called Don't Let Technology Crack your nest egg and is available on amazon.com it's also available from the website at uh, selectbooks.com and of course it's at your local bookstore uh, as well and you can go to the best of times news website to um, to download in order it is a fantastic book i've read it twice and i'm going to read it again to to learn some new things to help me and and my family members and others in dealing with this so thank you ken for joining us today Thanks again for having me. So let's let's talk about an interesting topic that I get more of my friends and relatives saying, "Well, Gary, you got to get this particular product." I just read the reviews about it. It's so remarkable. So what what you told in your book is you said, "I've been told that eighty four percent of people can't spot a fake review." That's according to some survey. Yeah, well, there's tons of information, and marketers are trying to get better about trying to keep fake reviews off of their website, but then there are other marketers that go out and pay for fake reviews uh, to try to get it through. At the end of the day, you know, the reviews are kind of secondary. They're the marketing speak that's trying to make it sound like your friend told you to buy this. The best endorsement you could have is when a friend of yours buys something and says, this performed great and I love it and you should buy it. So the whole review thing is to try to emulate that feeling that someone is telling you that you should buy this. The problem with a lot of these reviews is that they might not be coming from your point of view or your experience. So to read any individual review is is probably not the best way to do it. You might want to look at the totality of the reviews and see how many are good, how many are bad, and, and that type of thing. But keep in mind, like when you're looking for a hotel, let's say, someone might give it a terrible ho- uh, review because you know, the swimming pool was closed that weekend and the kids couldn't use it. But meanwhile, you'll never go into a swimming pool when you go to a hotel, so you don't care about that. You might actually care about whether, you know, how far from the uh, the elevator the room is. The types of things that people could review on are so, so bespoke, so individually oriented, as it's not likely to necessarily be what you care about. So the important thing about reviews 
is to look at them for their overall impression. Now, if you have the time to do it, let's say for a travel review, you could see ones that seem a little fake when they had very, you know, kind of broad stroke comments. Had a great time. Mary at the ball was wonderful. Uh, the service was fabulous. I would take less from that than one that said, I stayed in room 702. The ice machine across the way was squeaky and, and, and gives you details. So if you're going to take the time to read reviews, try to just concentrate on the ones that, that someone actually had to be interacting with the item, product, or experience to be able to tell you that information, not just kind of a very 10,000-foot, oh, that was a pleasant thing and worked just as I would. You need to be a critical reader of reviews if you want to use them as an effective method of screening what you want to uh, spend your money on. Wow. So let's let's uh, in closing here. Let's let's think about this topic. There are many people out there about to retire, about or start thinking about retirement. So what should they do specifically, focused on especially during this pandemic time, to keep their savings that they already have for for their future retirement? What what, what are your suggestions on that? The number one thing I would say to people is to beware of you know one click solutions. I mean the whole financial services industry has kind of evolved with, with, you know, a lot of skepticism. People say, well, this broker's only out to get me, or this is not so complicated, or I could buy the entire market and all in one click. But the reality of it is, you know, putting together a sound financial plan for your future involves a lot of disparate pieces of information that need to be really considered. And, you know, too much of complexity is being masqueraded as simplicity by a lot of pretty websites with cartoons and click here and oh you're a green instead of a red so you're in the safe zone instead of the the, the uh, danger zone and th- this kind of dumbing down of financial advice is something that I think is really really a problem and it continues to be more of a problem no one has your particular situation no one has your particular needs and this idea that there's one kind of group think that will serve your needs is very dangerous. One of the things that I point out in the book is that a lot of, let's say, the financial planning software that's out there that you have to answer these 20 questions before they'll give you this portfolio is you'll answer 20 questions, but if they filled up Yankee Stadium with 50,000 people that answered those 20 questions exactly like you answered them, you won't recognize any of them as being in your situation because these (laughs) questions are in many ways designed for everyone to do what I call the Goldilocks answer. No one's going to say they're too hot. No one's going to say they're too cold. So a lot of these programs are designed to push you towards the middle. And then in the middle, they give you a portfolio that's kind of this middle portfolio that's, you know, not really right for anyone, but seems to be right for everybody. And that's the number one danger I think people need to look for. I'm not saying that investing has to be complicated. But on the other side of the coin, to just go on, do five or six clicks or spend two hours of reading in something and said, hey, I'm just going to go with that might not be looking at all the things that you need to be looking at to defend your family's financial future. So in in closing, what do you hope that readers will take away from reading your book, Don't Let Technology Crack Your Nest Egg? The number one thing is people have to recognize they are the stewards of their assets. They are the guardians of their family's financial future. And now there's tremendous forces aligned against our wallets, all trying to kind of get us to spend wallet share or invest with them or travel with them, and they're getting more and more sophisticated tools to push hot buttons we didn't even know we had. And my hope in writing the book was to alert people to all the types of things that are, you know, dangerous. I wrote the very beginning of the book is that 
is, is the idea that, you know, uh, my car was stopped going to work one day because there was a goose walking across the, the road. All of evolution has made geese one of the most amazing creatures. They could fly 50,000 feet over 6,000 miles, but the most dangerous thing they do is walk across an asphalt highway because evolution didn't tell them that asphalt is, is, is dangerous because a car can hit you. The digital superhighway is the same thing. We all know that if the stove is hot, we don't touch it. We all know that we don't walk down a dark alley. You know, we hang out with bad people. But in the digital world, we hang out credit card numbers off our chest. Our avatars go hang out with some of the most unsavory people walking down the darkest alleys because we're not <laughs> evolutionally aware of how to think about this virtual digital world. And that's where we need to protect ourselves in. And if people just get that into their mind as they read the book, that they need to be the guardian of their digital selves, then I really am gratified that they got something from that I was trying to give well, them in the book. Well, that is definitely, I see that throughout the book, that you're, you're giving them so many helpful hints and tips and, and advice to, to help protect that nest egg. And that's what you, that's the title of your book. Don't let technology crack that nest egg. You're built that nest egg. You don't want it to be cracked and, and all all gone away. You might lose a little bit, but you don't want to lose the entire nest egg to, to have a peaceful and happy retirement as well. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, the secondary title, Rethinking Personal Finance for the Digital Age, is what it's really about. We all need to rethink personal finance and how our relationship with money and spending for the digital age. Because believe me, the digital age is rethinking how to interact with you. Wow. So, again, thank you for joining us today. It was quite educational. My recommendations to all of you out there, it's Don't Let Technology Crack Your Nest Egg by Ken Kamen, K-A-M-E-N, available on Amazon as well as in other, other sources. I highly recommend the book. And thank you again for joining us today to give us a little insight, a little lanyard, a little extra information about your book. Again, best wishes to you, and uh, stay safe and healthy during this pandemic times. You and your family as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our show today. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of the Best of Times magazine at our distribution location.